2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to open your word and to worship you based upon the word empowered by your spirit, focused on Jesus, our Savior, your Son, by your grace. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5. We all need goals. And this time of year is a typical reset on our goals. I'm going to go back to the gym. I'm going to eat the right kind of food. I'm going to drink less coffee or more, depending on your goals. These are all reasonable and fine goals. The bigger question, the more important question, is why? If there's no larger perspective for these goals, it is likely that these goals will go by the wayside after months, maybe even before you do the first endeavor. You might not even make it with enough self-will to that very first endeavor. If we don't have a larger perspective, often we are faltering in our goals. As we look at our spiritual lives, we may have a very similar problem. Why do we bother to read the Bible, to pray? Why do we bother to gather together as a church to worship? Why do we care about a life that reflects the character and holiness of God? Why not just live our lives and just indulge in whatever our heart's desire is? Here's the reason. This is what, what moves us. We are on mission. We are on mission. God has been on mission from before the creation of the world. His mission is to redeem a people for himself, a people that would enjoy his goodness, would enjoy his satisfaction, and would reflect his character. As a side note, this really is the goal of the Gospel Project, is to show us that God has been on mission from the beginning of the creation and continues on that mission to today and gives you and I the opportunity to be part of that mission. And so our goal throughout the Gospel Project cycle, which is three years in length, is to see how God incorporates people like you and I into his incredible eternal mission. God is on mission. We are on mission. Throughout the Bible, we see God taking broken vessels like us, saving them, and using them to be a part of his glorious plan. It's a plan, I've said this before and I will say it again, it is a plan that cannot fail. Because the origin of the plan is God. The impetus of the plan is God. The power of the plan is God. The surety of the plan is God. He will not fail. He cannot fail. We have the privilege of being on mission with him. As we read this passage of scripture this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want for us to notice that we are on mission with God. Take a look beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Continue reading into chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by endurance or by great endurance in afflictions, Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. We, we can continue on. He's letting us know that on this mission, we are to reflect something of God's character. It comes by his work. It comes through his spirit's ministry. This morning, we want to try to understand three truths that relate to our mission with God. We'll do this rather succinctly because we are celebrating the Lord's table together, and so we want to make sure there's ample time for our celebration of the Lord's table. And this will really, I trust, set the tone for that celebration as we reflect first upon Christ. Secondly, on whether we're actually involving ourselves in this mission to which we've been called. And thirdly, to a proclamation that we are participating, we are part of what Christ has done, and so we are on that mission. First truth we want to notice here is we have been enlisted. We have been enlisted. It was a special day. I had many special days in my life. I remember many different events in my life. But um, one particular day stands out in regard to this 
conversation. It happened to be my daughter's birthday, January 17th, uh, 2013. My family gathered together over in Airport Plaza. There was a little recruiting office back there. We went in there and I signed all of my documents, but before I was able to finish that process, I had to take my oath of office. The oath of office reads like this for the officer. I, Robert Charles Clark, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I am about to enter, so help me God. It was really cool. I, I remember this. I would never uttered those words before. I had to raise my hand and do all of this, and, and at the end of that, I was officially a, a direct commissioned officer. Now, there is a distinction between the oath of an officer and the oath of an enlisted sailor or a soldier or a marine. The oath of enlistment sounds like this. I, state your name, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the constitu Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Listen carefully to the difference now. This was not in the officer's oath. And I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the uniform, uniform code of military justice. So help me God. There's a distinction between the officer's oath and the enlisted oath. Well, with that kind of as a measuring stick, as we look at what God has called us to, we are not taking the officer's oath. We are taking the enlisted oath. Now, our president is not the president of the United States of America. In fact, the president to which we are committing ourselves is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the sovereign Lord over the church. He is the head of the church. You can see that in Ephesians 1. You can see that in Colossians chapter 1. You can see it elsewhere. He is, in fact, the Lord over his church. He is the, the president in this scenario. The Constitution would then have as uh, stand in the place of what we have as the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible is our Constitution. When we talk about the fact that we've been enlisted into a mission work by God, we recognize we did not, we, we were not enlisted as those who have jurisdiction over it, but in fact just those who are stewards. Stewards of God's truth, stewards of God's mission. It's not Cornerstone Church's mission. Every church has a mission statement. It's good, you should have a mission statement, but it's not about the Cornerstone Church's mission statement. Individuals, maybe you have your own little mission statement. It's not about your mission statement. It's about God's mission statement. It's about Him. He is the one who sets the stage and sets the pace for the mission that we're on. And the blessing, folks, is this. He's enlisted me. He's enlisted you to follow the directives that he's given to us. In what way? Listen to how this enlistment is described here in the text. Look at verse 18. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the first little hint that we've been commissioned or enlisted. He's given us the ministry. The word ministry is the word diakonos. That's the, the, the concept. It's a, it's a servanthood. It's, it's something that we come alongside and, and participate in. The ministry of reconciliation, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message. The word there is lagos. That's the, the demonstration, something that, that comes in, in fleshly way. The message. He's given us the message of reconciliation. Now, why do I emphasize the word lagos? Well, we know that there's rhema, that's spoken word, right? Then there's graphe, that's written word. This is good. Then there's lagos, that's the word incarnate. Jesus talks about himself being the word, or the Bible talks about Jesus being the word. It's the word fleshed out in a way that we can see the glory of God. And that really is the ministry that we've been given. We've been given a ministry that demonstrates the very message that we're given to proclaim. He's entrusted to us the logos, the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. We don't go with our own mission. We don't go with our own statements. We don't go with our own policies. We are, we are proclaiming the policies of the God who is above us. The mission work is one in which we proclaim who God is and who, what he has done in Christ. There's a text of scripture. It'll be on the screen behind me. Paul really brings it down to the nitty gritty. And he says... In 2 Timothy chapter 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The word enlisted is the Greek term uh, stratologeo. You hear strategy in there? The one who strategizes with the word, who, who issues directives. He's enlisted us. We have been enlisted. That's the first truth that we notice from this text that tells us about our mission. We've, first of all, we've been enlisted by God. Secondly, this is, this is great. We have received the benefits of the message we preach. We have received the benefits of the message we preach. Now, let's just kind of bring this down to normal life again. Every now and then I listen to a radio station, it's a sports station, and there's a guy on there called Glenn Ordway, also known as the Big O. <laughs> he, he does this commercial for my pillow, and he tells us it changed my life. And the reason it does, he couldn't sleep before. He finally found the pillow that would help him sleep. Now, the, the, the owner, the, the founder of my pillow, had the same exact situation. Like, he couldn't find a pillow that he could sleep on, so he decided he was going to make a pillow. So he, he made the pillow that he, that he thought would, would be great, and finally he, he could sleep on this pillow. It's great. He started his own company, and he wants to sell this pillow to everyone else. Now, the point of this illustration is not to go out and buy a MyPillow. I don't have one yet. I might at some point get my pillow. The point isn't about my pillow. The point is... The, the credibility that comes with someone giving an advertisement is because they first experienced the benefits of it. 
Who cares if some athlete tells me about like going to this place over here and buying a car from them? I don't care. What difference does that make any difference? But like if someone can tell you a reason to go buy a product because they've experienced it and it changed their lives, that might motivate someone to buy the product. Well, we as those who have trusted Christ have received the benefits of the message that we've been enlisted to preach. Take a look at verses 17 and following. Verse 17 and 18, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, you, you've, you've experienced it. If you've trusted Christ, you remember. You remember when you first tasted the goodness of God. You had lived however many years, whether it was few or many, you had lived with a sense of self and maybe a sense of failure and maybe a sense of guilt, maybe a sense of terror or fear about what was to be. And then you tasted the goodness of God. Now Paul said the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It causes us to say, wow, this trajectory I'm on, this pathway I'm on, it's not leading where I need to go. When you sense and taste the goodness of God, you say, that's what I want. And so you turn off of your path and you head toward a, a different path. You've tasted that the Lord is gracious. The old is gone, the new has come. And you say, this is, this is incredible. This is incredible. I now know who God is, and I now have a relationship with him, and I know that no matter what happens in my life, he loves me. You've tasted the goodness of God. You've experienced it. And when you've tasted that goodness, why would you shut up about it? Why would you keep your mouth closed? You know the revolutionary way in which God has dealt with you. Everything else was only dissatisfying. Well, you might have enjoyed this endeavor or that endeavor for a period of time, because things are fun. But eventually it just kind of seems a little, huh, this isn't doing it for me. This is, this is one of the problems. This is one of the reasons why people that have a lot of money come to the end of themselves, because they've indulged in this, that, and the other thing, and it didn't satisfy them. They, I've got everything. I've got everything. I, there's nothing else that I want, and I still am not satisfied. You won't find that with Christ. You won't find that. You'll find satisfaction in him. And when you've tasted of that and experienced the benefits of that and the glory of that, you can't keep your mouth closed. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Why wasn't he counting their trespasses against them? Because he counted their trespasses against Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through faith or through, through him. 
we have experienced forgiveness. We've experienced peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit and fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people and hope for the future. Hope, a confident expectation. Someday I'm going to breathe my last breath. What then? I know. I know whom my Redeemer is. I know I will see my Redeemer. I know that as soon as I am absent from this body, I'll be present with the Lord, which according to Paul, and I, 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 I trust, there's no doubt about this in my mind, it's far better. Before we were enlisted to carry the message, we were first reconciled to God. What is reconciliation? What does it mean to be reconciled? You probably never need to do this in your house, but we spend some of our time officiating conflict in our house. Sometimes might happen here and there. He took the, the seat. He took the last piece of bacon. He took the last bit of root beer. He took the last bit of sparkling grape juice. Sparkling grape juice. The very favorite drink of one son of mine. He took the very last one. There's no more cake. There's no more. You know, we, sometimes we have to deal with these things, right? There's, what, it's, it's unrest. There's not peace. There's not harmony. We try to help bring about a peaceable resolution and to take these two that are at odds, or three, or five, or seven, that are at odds, and bring them into harmony. We try to do this. We're, we're, we try to make peace, reconciliation. Well, when the Bible talks about reconciliation, it's talking about two parties that are at odds. And those parties are me and God. I'm born at odds with God. I'm born in conflict with God. My children, I have five of them that are still on earth. Five of them. They're, they're born beautiful, cute, lovely. They do all the things that babies are supposed to do. You have to clean up after them. And you, and you like fawn over things that like everyone else that looks at you and thinks, why are you fawning over the fact that she just smiled at you? Like, we just do that because they're so cute and everything, but they're all born at odds with God. They're enemies of God. Why? By nature, they were conceived as sinners. And as sinners, they're not reconciled. Reconciliation is when God takes this opponent and says, no, I will make you a son. I will adopt you into my family. We will be at peace. There will be real, lasting, eternal fellowship between you and me. This is what God does in reconciling himself with us or reconciling us with him. How was this reconciliation accomplished? Well, we've read it a number of times already, but it's, it's pretty obvious. Look at verse 18 again. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19. In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's through Christ. It's through faith in Christ. How can we be reconciled to God? It's only through Christ. If you have been 
reconciled to God through Christ, you know the benefits. You've experienced the forgiveness of your sin, the removal of guilt, and this hope of glory. You are on mission. You're on mission. The humdrum of life is over. It's not about getting the oil changed, though you have to do that. Not about filling the car up with gas, but you have to do that. It's not about eating, but you have to do that. Not about cleaning the house, though you have to do it. It's not about going to work and paying the bills, though you have to do all these things. These are just parts of our lives. This is not our mission. Our mission is grander. It's greater. It's more glorious. And it has an eternal value. All the other things, they're, they're nice. It's, I love my family, and I love to, to, to spend time with them, and we love to eat dinner together. We love to do all those things. It's all good. I like vehicles. I like to keep them working. When they don't work, I get rid of them and get another one because I can't stand broken vehicles. Like, I don't like any of that. But that's just all like the, the, the normal parts of life. We are on a grand and glorious and eternal mission. We've been enlisted and we've tasted. Thirdly, we are motivated. We are motivated to bring the message. We're motivated to bring the message. And I want to give you three reasons we are motivated to bring this message. First of all, we are motivated by the love of Christ because it grips us. Look at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. It seizes us. It grips us. The King James word is constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see what, you see what he did? He gave his life died, was buried, and rose again. That love that we've experienced from Christ grips us and says, I want to give my life to him. He's given his life to me. Let's, let's take a little, a little quiz. Whose life would you rather have? Yours or his? I want to remind you that yours, if, if you choose yours, you don't get his. Like, so, so you think about 70, 80, 90, 100 years of, of this life, okay? All the things you can accumulate and do for yourself to make yourself happy. If you choose you, you then you choose the consequences of all that you've done. To choose his life is to, to take you from this mortal and give you immortality. To take you from this corruptible and give you incorruption. To take you from this present wicked, deceptive world and place you into a glorious, eternal heaven. So which one would you choose? Well, the answer is so easy for those of us that know who he is. We would choose him every time. So what he did is he said, I'll take your life, I'll give you mine, in exchange for you giving me your life and taking mine. The love of Christ grips us. We say, wow, why would he want this guy when he already had the glory of heaven forever. It's, it's pretty remarkable. We are motivated by the love of Christ. He is 
a remarkable, remarkable Savior. Secondly, we are motivated by the beauty of the message. It inspires us. What is the message? I'm a sinner. God is a reconciler. Jesus is a Savior, a rescuer. God was willing to take this sinner and take him from my sin and the consequences of my sin and the misery of my sin and to give me his glorious righteousness which has the ultimate prize of eternal righteousness and eternal life with God. It's a beautiful message. A God who could just simply disassociate with us because he's holy doesn't choose to do so but instead in his love reaches down and grips us. It's a beautiful message. There's a third motivating factor that we can notice. We are motivated by our union with God's purposes. By our union with God's purposes. I want you to think about this, and maybe you think about it all the time, and so maybe, maybe you don't need this little reminder. I do. I need this reminder. When you bring the gospel to someone, it's not about you as a salesman or saleswoman. It's not about you and your cleverness. The way that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, communicates this is when you lovingly display and communicate the gospel, it's like God communicating and lovingly claiming the gospel. Look at what he says again in verse 19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Can God, can God talk? Yes. Could God visibly come down and communicate the gospel message to someone? Yes. Um, if you want to get really theological, people that were listening would probably die. You know, I, I don't really know how, how all that would work out, but God could do whatever he wanted. He could write it across the sky. He could send a, you a text message. He could do any of those things. That's not what he chooses to do. He doesn't choose to come down and write a message across the sky or put it across your TV screen, even though you were watching something else. He doesn't do that. He uses... These people right here and other churches as well. People. What are they doing? They're bringing the gospel, both in proclamation and in life, so that the gospel is seen and heard. And in that way, God is appealing to that person be reconciled with me. I've done everything needed, including broadcasting the message to you through my servant. We are motivated by our union with God's purposes. In chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, working together with him then. You know what that means? God just said, you're my co-laborer. That's astonishing. Like, I know, you know, I think about God's word and I think about how high and lifted up he is and his train fills the temple. We, we think about... Uh, Ezekiel's vision of God and how this radiant, glorious, beautiful splendor. You think about John's experience of seeing God in Revelation chapter 4 and this 
beautiful, bright, glorious, radiant splendor. You think, wow, God is way out there, and he's, he's beautiful, and he's, he's distant. Well, this text says, no, he's working right now, right here. And we lose perspective. We can lose perspective while we're gathered together for a gospel meeting or while we go off and we're talking to our co-worker, someone we're sitting next to at a restaurant, someone we're meeting at a store. We're, thinking, we're not thinking God is, is in this. I'm working with God. Not just working for God. That's great to work for God. Working with God. This is God's work. We're on mission, folks. We're on mission. We're not at this task on our own. We're not bringing the gospel message to people as our own little generals, but as part of God's mission. When we plead with someone to trust Christ, it's as if God is pleading with them. That, that is unfathomable. When we go, we're going as representatives of him. This should serve as plenty of motivation to know and experience him. Our presentation is from first-hand experience. You know what it's like to trust Christ, to have your sin forgiven. Don't forget that when you're communicating the gospel to someone. We're on mission, not our mission, not the mission of the church, not the mission of the, 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 even the universal church. We're on mission from the God of the church. And he goes with us. In the endeavor. Remember Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're on mission from God with this glorious message. The question we've got to ask ourselves as we reflect now on the Lord's table is, will I place myself under God's sovereign care? Will I surrender to his working so that he would do in me and through me his work? His mission work. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to yield ourselves to you, recognizing that our lives are yours. We pray, Father, that as we enter into this new year, as we have begun this new year, that we would recognize the privilege that is ours to be your people. And we pray, Father, that others would see your goodness and your glory we pray that we would see people coming to know Jesus as you plead with them through us and the message of the gospel that Jesus bore sin and the guilt of sin and the judgment for sin so that others, myself included, would not have to face that condemnation but instead receive welcome and fellowship and joy, and everlasting life. Help us, Father, that we would see people coming to know Jesus by your glory, for your glory, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.